were when I was young. Why? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> because as I've gotten older, I find myself craving, longing, and desiring the kind of rest that God is described to be experiencing in these verses. And I am willing to bet so are every single one of you here watching me or in this room. You know, I once heard someone say that life is kind of like waking up way early in the morning to the sound of an annoying, loud alarm clock. You just feel so disoriented, so annoyed, so frustrated that the only thing you want to do is to get rid of the irritating source robbing you of your state of rest. And of course, if you've ever been in that situation, as I'm sure you have, you know there's only one of two options that you have at that moment. You can calmly get up out of bed and press the off button of the alarm clock, or you could turn around, grab a hammer, or even with your bare fist, decimate that alarm clock, silencing it forever. <laughs> now, in both of these instances, you achieve the same goal. You're able to get back to a state of rest, but the difference, however, is your relationship to that clock. On the one hand, there is peace, there is calmness. On the other hand, there is chaos and destruction. And this silly illustration points to a lesson the Apostle James wants us to apply to our lives so that we would be better off than we are right now. How so? Let me explain. But first, we're continuing our sermon series entitled Grow Up, where the whole point of this series is to look at the six characteristics of a maturing, <coughs> genuine Christian faith. And today, we land on the fourth characteristic known as wisdom, being a wise person. Now, for those of you who were with us last year as we went through the Proverbs series, you may recall the working definition of wisdom that I gave you back then. But just in case this is your first time with us, let me give you that definition again. Wisdom is the practical skill of applying knowledge that makes your life safe and stable as well as satisfying and successful. Again, wisdom is the practical skill of applying knowledge to yourself to where your, your life ends up being safe, stable, successful, and satisfying. Now, based on that definition of wisdom, that implies something about life, does it not? Of course it does. What is that? Well, think about it. If wisdom is the means of having a life that is safe, stable, successful, and satisfying, that means that those without wisdom end up with a life that is dangerous, chaotic, frustrating, and full of failures, right? You see, the existence of wisdom assumes that life in general, for most people, most often, is dangerous, is frustrating, is chaotic, and potentially full of many failures. And these negative things can have the impact upon us emotionally and psychologically to where we get so annoyed, so irritated, so frustrated that it can bring out a destructive nature out of us. And if we're not careful, we can end up damaging something way more precious, way more important to us than a cheap alarm clock easily replaceable. And if that wasn't worrisome enough, the Apostle James also warns that it's this kind of destructive mindset that the world is always trying to enchant us with, entice us with to live out. Why? Because according to the world, that's wisdom. And because James doesn't want our minds to get polluted with this kind of ungodly wisdom, he gives us an alternative wisdom that we are to live out instead. And he does this by comparison worldly wisdom to godly wisdom in the hopes that you would see the obvious superiority of godly wisdom and therefore pursue it with all your heart. And so with that stage set, three things I'd like to share with you in today's message. First, we're going to talk about the ways of worldly wisdom. Then we're going to talk about the ways of godly wisdom. And then we're going to end it with the ways to acquire godly wisdom. <clears throat> the ways of worldly wisdom, godly wisdom, and then the way to acquire godly wisdom. Okay, let's begin with the first point, 
the ways of worldly wisdom. Read again with me verse 14 of our passage down to 16 where we read, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Okay, so right off the bat, James is describing for us worldly wisdom, or as he sometimes refers to it as earthly or unspiritual wisdom. And when you first read this description, you can't help but to be somewhat overwhelmed because he is just inundating with so much information, almost to the point where it's too much to where, in effect, it's almost as if he's saying nothing at all. But you see, James is doing that on purpose. He is trying to overwhelm us to how he describes worldly wisdom. Do you know why? Because he's trying to illustrate for us the mindset of worldly wisdom. And you know what that mindset is? It's the mindset of the hustle, the hustle. Do you guys know what it means to hustle? Consider these definitions from dictionary.com. To hustle, to push or force one's way, to act aggressively, especially in business dealing, to obtain something by deceitful or illicit means, practice theft or swindling, to misrepresent one's ability in order to deceive someone. This is what it means to hustle. And therefore, if you are a hustler, that means you use shady, sneaky, slimy tactics in order to get the kind of life that wisdom gives you, a safe, stable, satisfying, successful life. You know, a few years ago, there was a smash hit show, smash hit show on HBO called The Sopranos. For those of you who've never seen it, as your pastor, I can't really encourage you to watch it, okay? But <clears throat> it's basically about this man, Tony Soprano, who is the head of an Italian mafia family in northern New Jersey. And, of course, he is like any standard criminal. He does some really disgusting and vile things. But the thing that made this show such a huge success wasn't the crime, wasn't the edgy drama. <coughs> it was rather the discovery that this disgusting, wicked man really wanted the same things in life as everyone else. He wanted to have a happy marriage. He wanted his kids to do well in school. You know, he wanted his family to be provided for and to be safe. Yeah, this show revealed with clarity that the wicked really want the same things that we all want in life. They want a life free of danger, free of chaos and frustration and failures. But the key difference between someone like Tony Soprano and the rest of us, according to James, is that Tony Soprano is willing to employ a kind of wisdom that is completely antithetical to the wisdom that God says that we are to live out. And what is this key difference? James tells us by using one word, demonic. The key difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is that it's demonic. Let me explain what, my, what I mean by asking you this question. What are demons? Do you know? What are demons? Well, according to one Bible scholar, Merrill Unger, he defines a demon as a minister of Satan. Yeah, a minister of Satan. Now, don't let that description fool you into thinking that demons in general are so loyal to their master because they are so devoted to him and they love him. No, not at all. Quite the opposite. And the reason why I say that is because when you consider the main minister of Satan, i.e. the Antichrist, and you read how the Bible describes him, you come to find that his loyalty to Satan is driven by ulterior motives. Take a listen to what it says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He, the Antichrist, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself, not Satan, but himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Self-worship 
is at the heart of the mindset of demons, which also means that self-worship is at the heart of demonic or worldly wisdom. Now, because that is true, do you realize that what that means? It means people who live by this worldly or demonic wisdom, they genuinely believe that the only way you can have a safe, stable, satisfying, and successful life is when you are perceived and treated by everyone else as if you are God yourself. Let me say that again. People who live by worldly wisdom genuinely believe that the only way they can have a safe, stable, successful, satisfying life is when they are recognized as God himself. And so they will destroy, they will ruin, they will show no mercy to those who fail to recognize them as God or compete to their claims to be God. And here's what's so sinister about this. These people will be so deluded that they'll even think that by thinking this way and acting this way, they're doing something good for the world. Yeah. Let me explain with a silly illustration. I'm sure by now many of you guys have seen the Avenger movies that have been coming out over the years, including um, all the, uh, the sequels that have come out to it. And as you recall those movies, I want to draw your attention to a scene in the Avengers Affinity Wars movie. It's a dialogue between Doctor Strange and the main villain, Thanos. Do you guys remember that conversation? And at one point, Doctor Strange asks Thanos, what do you plan to do once you accomplish the most atrocious cosmic genocide ever? Thanos, the evil guy, says this, I'd finally rest and watch the sun rise on a grateful universe. The hardest choices require the strongest will. Now you hear that, and you can't help but to be so disgusted by this man's logic. Really, Thanos? You killed all these people so you could get the infinity stones giving you the power of God so that you can further kill trillions upon trillions of people across the galaxy, and you expect the whole universe to be grateful, that you achieve some objective good, and yet James says that's exactly how people driven by this worldly wisdom think. They are, according to verse 14, false to the truth. So putting all this together, what is the way of worldly wisdom? It's simple. It's the attempt to live a safe, stable, satisfying, and successful life by controlling, conquering, and condemning others as if you are God yourself. One more time. The way of worldly wisdom is when you attempt to live a safe, stable, successful, and satisfying life by conquering, controlling, and condemning others as if you are God yourself. That is the way of the world with regard to what they think is the way of wisdom. It's demonic. It's disgusting. Now let's consider the alternative that James is encouraging us to pursue instead of that route. And this leads me to my next point, the ways of godly wisdom. Read again with me verse 13 where we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. If you have a pen or highlighter, please circle or underline that word meekness. Because by using that word, James is showing us the kind of wisdom that God's people should have. It's the kind of wisdom that exhibits meekness or is meek. Now, for those of you who may not know, the word meek is another word for humble or humility. To where a meek person is a humble person, a humble person is a meek person. So, let's do a quick recap. From the previous point, we learned worldly wisdom is defined as a hustling wisdom. Here, we just learned that godly wisdom is defined as a humble wisdom. Now, here's the question. How can you know if the wisdom a person possesses is the humble kind and not the hustling kind? 
Well, James just told us in this verse. By his good conduct, or as some translation puts it, by living a good life. Now, isn't that interesting? Because normally when you and I encounter someone who's lived a good life, we would say, man, that person is such a moral person. Very rarely we would ever say, wow, that's such a wise person, right? When we encounter someone who's lived with integrity, lived with wholeness and maturity, we would say, man, that person is so moral. Never do we ever call someone wise. But consider these words from A.W. Tozer as he defines wisdom. He says this, quote, Wisdom that is mere shrewdness is often attributed to evil men, but such wisdom is treacherous and false. In the Holy Scriptures, wisdom, when used of God and good men, always carries a strong moral connotation. It is conceived as being pure, loving, and good, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying godly wisdom is always within the context of a moral framework, which is a fancy way of saying that wisdom, godly wisdom, centers on and it depends on relationships. Relationships. Look again at what it says in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Notice how when James is describing a person with godly wisdom, he's using words that would usually be describing wholesome and healthy, honoring human relationships so for example he starts off with pure as in this person has a love for someone that is pure it's not tainted with selfish or sinful desires then he goes on to say it's peaceable that is this person has relationships that are devoid of conflict to where it's not motivated by jealousy or envy or comparison or spirit of competition and then he says it's gentle that is this person is safe to be around that is he will not embarrass or judge or condemn someone who may have some certain flaws and issues that are so humiliating to confess and then this person is full of mercy he doesn't hold grudges he doesn't keep a record of wrongs he's always willing to forgive those who gently want it from him and then he ends it with sincere this person cares about a relationship with this person not because this person gives them something they want but because they want this person in their lives you see james describes godly wisdom with relational terms relationships that produce healthy honest holy relationships Now, when you understand that, then you understand what is vitally necessary, the core ingredient in order to be wise from God's perspective. You need to have good, genuine, honest, humble, sincere relationships. Yeah, that is more important than anything else if you want to be wise in the eyes of God. And Christian, this is something that I want you to grasp because many of you don't get this. Because for many of you, you think that in order to be wise, you need to be amazingly smart, incredibly skilled, like incomparably competent. As if to say that the whole point of being wise is to be able to get more work done with less time, make more money with less work, and to have more happiness with less sacrifice. Is that really the goal of wisdom? No, not according to God. And the way that you become wise according to God is not through smarts, it's not through skills, it's not through cleverness or competency. No, the way through wisdom, the way to get wisdom, is to have healthy, honoring, gracious, good relationships. Let me break it down with a couple of examples. Let's say there's a scientist out there who discovers a life-saving technology. Let's say he's able to uh, create the technology of teleportation, where a person can teleport from one part of the world to another. But let's say this same scientist has a wife who leaves him because he is a wicked husband, abusing her, hurting her. Scripture would say that this brilliant man is a fool. He's not wise. Or let's say you have a medical doctor who discovers a cure for cancer, all cancer, 
but his children want nothing to do with him because he was a wicked, evil father. Scripture would say that brilliant, intelligent doctor is not a wise person at all. But conversely, let's say you have a guy who barely has a high school education, but he's surrounded by people who trust him, who believe in his promises, who, are s- who feel safe to be around him where they can freely confess and ask for encouragement and support from him, and he always comes through. Scripture says that is a wise person in the eyes of God. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, what I just said to you make, might make no sense to you. In fact, it might sound like nonsense because in your mind you think, how in the world do relationships and wisdom go together like that? It just seems so arbitrary, so random. Well, let me see if I can use an illustration to explain. Let's say you have a child who grows up in a very unstable, toxic environment. Negligent parents, bullying and abusive brothers and sisters, living in poverty, the whole nine yards. Now, this young child could grow and develop three kinds of mindset according to sociologists. The first mindset that they could develop is the survivor mindset. Where due to the trauma and difficulties that he faced relationally, he's now motivated by negative relational energies like jealousy, envy, selfish ambition. And he uses that to fuel the knowledge and the wisdom that he needs according to the world so that he makes sure he never suffers like he did before. That's a survivor mindset. Now, the problem with that is that you end up turning into a Thanos. You end up developing a God complex. The second mindset that child could develop into is the victim mindset where they feel so doomed and living such an inferior life that they're not even going to attempt to be wise because they have no confidence that they could ever be wise. And so they end up staying the fool, never growing in knowledge or, or skill or competency. And they end up recycling the same tragic toxicity that they had growing up to the people around them. The third mindset that this child could develop is the empowered mindset. And the key thing here is that the only way a child like that could develop this mindset is if they meet someone later on in life, usually an amazing spouse or maybe a child born into their life that they love more than themselves. And now this love empowers this person relationally to learn new things, to push through their insecurities and try to get more competent with the things of life so that he can provide a safe, stable, successful, and satisfying life for those that he cherishes so much. Don't you see? Relationships fuel and motivate a person to become more competent, to become more knowledgeable, to become more skilled, to become wise, but in a way that doesn't give you a Thanos godlike complex. Relationships are the fuel that drives a person towards the way of wisdom. And James tells us it's not only the fuel, it's the destination. Because what James tells us that if you really want to have the fruits of wisdom, a life that is safe, stable, satisfying, and successful, then you need to have relationships that are safe, relationships that are stable, relationships that are satisfying, relationships that are successful. Relationships are the key to godly wisdom. It is the fuel and the pathway towards the life of wisdom. Now, some of you are hearing all this, and you might feel pretty discouraged because as you assess The purity of your relationships right now, it doesn't seem very pure. It's like tainted gasoline. Not much purity that could really propel you towards the way of wisdom to where you could become wise. Maybe things at home haven't been going well. Maybe you've hit a detour with regard to your friendships, or maybe you felt like you hit a dead end in trying to attempt to cultivate community in the church. And as a result, You may think, how in the world can I go towards a direction of wisdom when the fuel that I need to get there, my relationships, just doesn't seem to have the kind of purity it needs 
to get me there? It's a great question. And to answer that, let's go to the final point, the way to acquire godly wisdom. Read again with me verse 18, where it says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here James tells us how we get an abundant harvest of the key ingredient we need to purify and to empower our relationships. And what is that key ingredient? Righteousness. You need righteousness in your relationship so that it can have the high octane it needs to take you towards the journey towards wisdom. But how do you get this wisdom? You get it, I'm sorry, how do you get this righteousness? James says you get it through the person who sows peace. Or put it another way, you get it from the person who creates and who establishes peace. And according to scripture, there's only one person capable of such a feat. And in fact, he's already done it. And of course, I'm speaking of God himself. Consider what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 30, we read, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is Paul speaking of here? He's speaking of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says that the only way to have true safety, the only way to have true stability, the only way to have true success and true satisfaction is through a relationship with God, right? Relationship is key, remember, towards wisdom. The only way you can have the life of wisdom, safe, stable, successful, satisfying, is if you have a thriving, life-giving relationship with God, which is exactly what God did for us when he came into the world as Jesus Christ to suffer the full penalty, full punishment for your sins and my sins to where if you turn away from your sins and make Jesus your Lord, you have full reconciliation with God. And now you have peace with God. Peace has been sown. Peace has been established. And Paul just told us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the result of this peace with God creates what? Righteousness, holiness. You see, your relationship with God purifies your relationships with one another and now your relationships have taken on the purity and now has the power to take you to the journey of wisdom the way of wisdom to where the more you grow in your understanding of the gospel the more you have to propel you towards greater wisdom through the relationship that god has blessed you with in the community known as the church do you guys see that and not just the church, but even relationships with those who don't share your faith. Your relationships get more and more holy, more righteous because of your relationship with God. And as a result, your wisdom ends up producing the kinds of fruit this world desperately needs. I don't think I need to convince any of you that we live in a world that right now that is desperately in need of godly wisdom. Not worldly wisdom, but godly wisdom. Because worldly wisdom does exact the opposite of what wisdom is trying to do. Worldly wisdom creates danger. It creates chaos. It creates frustration and failure. And you and I are in danger of recycling those negative things if we are not discerning of the kind of wisdom we pursue. If you want to have the kind of wisdom that really does give you the life of wisdom, safety, stability, success, and satisfaction, make sure it begins with the source that purifies the fuel you need to get there. Believe this gospel of Jesus Christ because it is only through him that you will be able to cultivate the fuel needed to get you on your way to becoming wiser and wiser and therefore becoming more of a blessing to the people around you. This 
is what it means to be wise in the eyes of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do you have, Christian? Let's pray. Father, as we think about how this world is, how it's so full of danger and chaos and frustration and failures, Father, our heart is always crying out for the source of wisdom that can free us from these things. And yet, Father, we get so easily duped by what the world tries to enchant us with, try to educate us with, with what it defines as wisdom. But Lord, we pray that we would be devoid of any sort of worldly wisdom, but instead be filled with the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that was given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for I know that they, like me, crave the rest that you have enjoyed on your seventh day of creation, a rest that we yearn for. But Lord, we pray that in our pursuit of rest, that we would not go in the pathway of demons, but rather we would follow in the way of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to be people filled with such joy because of the safeness, satisfaction, success, and stability that we have by knowing him. God, I just ask that we would be a community that would truly live out and embark the way of wisdom so long as we're on this earth, blessing this world with every degree of wisdom that we grow in. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, please, you're not obligated to give. But if you call NCF your home, let's give to God his tithes and his offerings. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to gather to worship you. Though we still have many needs and are still learning, thank you for sustaining us as a church and helping us navigate through the hard times. I pray for our pastors, staff, deacon board, ministry team leaders, and volunteers. Give them wisdom, discernment, strength, and perseverance. May we as a church continue to encourage them, love them, and pray for them. I pray for our children. May they grow their childlike faith and may we cherish them and be better examples of godly men and women of the church. I pray for our ministries. Help us to have one vision and work together to bless the church and community. Help us to thrive and learn more of the servant heart. I pray for our hearts. God, we are broken more than we care to admit. We think ourselves to be something we are not. We live for our own glory, but this way of life fails us again and again. We are proud and arrogant, but I pray that you will grant us mercy, for we do not know what we do. Give us wisdom and truth and the heart of repentance. Help us to change our ways and turn to you, because through you and you alone can we be strong enough to fight our worldly temptations and seek you first. Be with us, Lord. No matter how much we may fight it, hold us. When we are walking away from you, discipline us. 
comfort us in our distress, remind us of your love in our loneliness and doubts, heal our hurt and fear, hear our cries and desperation, break us when we need to be broken, break us down of our sins and worldliness, and refine us to be bold and courageous in the gospel. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that we do as a church family is once a month we partake in the family meal known as the Lord's Supper. As you have walked in, you should have received uh, one of these um, in your hand by our welcoming tea, uh, team. Excuse me. And so we are going to go ahead and partake. However, if you're here today investigating the Christian faith and you're someone who is considering the claims of Christ, but you wouldn't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, at least not yet, we would ask that you would not partake and refrain because to do so would be not only lying to yourself, but you would be lying to the Lord. And we would never want that to be the beginnings of a potential relationship with God. So we'd ask that you would not partake, but just observe and watch and see how God provides symbolized through this little meal of God's faithfulness, provision, and protection over his children. And know that if and when it's time for you to embrace Jesus as your Lord, that this table is here for you. Okay? But before we partake in this meal, let's all stand together and confess in solidarity of the confession that qualifies us to come towards this table. I ask you now, people of God, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried, and descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. And now I pass on to you that which the Lord Jesus gave to the church on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it, and he said to them, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat of it, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. So please go ahead and take out your wafer and remember the Lord's goodness, and let's partake together. After the supper, the Lord then, then took the cup, and he said to them, This is the cup of the new covenant that is in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink from it, all of you. Then later on, his servant, the Apostle Paul, tells us that whenever we eat or drink from this table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. So let's now partake in the cup. can't tell if, if people have figured it out yet. It's a little tricky. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your provision and your mercy. And we ask now that as we have partaken in these elements, Lord, something that is of this earth, Lord, that it would point to something much more meaningful, more spiritual, more life-giving. Father, we know that it is through the shedding of your son's blood and the breaking of his body that we have fellowship with you. For Lord, it is through 
the redemption of our sins and the overcoming of the evil one that we're able to stand in your very presence. And Lord, we pray that it's through this very relationship that we have that it would not only give us hope, that it would not only give us joy, but it will be the beginnings of giving us wisdom to where the righteousness and the holiness that we have acquired through your son would embark us on a journey relationally so that we can become more and more like your son who is the wisdom of God. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercies and we love you for all that you have done for us and for who you are. And we give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let's all stand together and respond to one final praise to our King. Thank you.